0: Welcome to Offshoot,
1: the Fident Capital podcast with host Kevin Choquette. Offshoot is a curiosity-driven conversation that features a wide range of real estate and business professionals. In each episode, we unpack the knowledge, vantage point, and domain expertise of our guests. Then, we move beyond the facts and figures and dive into the personal habits and mindset which allow them to be high performers in their respective field. This podcast's objective is simple supporting entrepreneurs, fostering relationships, and uncovering meaningful conversations that positively impact business.
0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me for episode three of Offshoot. Today, Eric Boyd from Crosshopper Capital Partners joined me. We had a great conversation around several aspects of the real estate industry and entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, both. Eric's done a great job of building a wonderful career within Cross Harbor and uh, previous employers. We talk a lot about hospitality and the capitulation that is yet to come and the impact that teams have in the phenomena that sees real estate as an asset class where large pension fund and insurance companies continue to allocate more dollars into the space we talk about the company culture within cross harbor and the notion of being constructively competitive and some of the daily habits that eric has and around uh, taking time to think and getting highly organized it's a great wide-ranging conversation i hope you enjoy it Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the conversation with my guest today, Eric Boyd. Eric's a managing director of Cross Harbor Capital Partners, a Boston-based asset management firm with $3 billion of assets under management. Cross Harbor invests up and down the capital stack, providing senior debt, mezz, preferred equity, and joint venture equity to the institutional and middle market real estate investors. Eric's an incredibly astute investor with a, a broad base of experience across all asset classes, and a very unique strength in hospitality. He's also highly analytical, but is amongst the best I've seen at creating risk-mitigating financial structures for the benefit of Cross Harbor's investors. Eric leads one of the three deal teams within Cross Harbor from the company's Newport Beach location, which I believe is a location that exists only because Eric wanted to migrate from East Coast winters to our palm tree spiced holiday seasons. Outside of work, Eric, like me, likes to spend a good time on the ski slopes each winter. Uh, Without any further ado, Eric, welcome to the podcast. Kevin,
1: thank you very much. Pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, Thanks for doing that. I appreciate it. Um, Look, to get us started, pretty broad question here, but could you just tell us a bit about yourself and Cross Harbor? Sure, happy
1: to. So um, I uh, got started uh, professionally in my career in the investment banking industry, um, spent time following uh, getting my college degree at, uh, at Bentley College in the Boston area, and um, was in the investment banking field uh, in New York City, uh, got great exposure uh, working in merger and acquisition advisory and, and doing equity and debt capital raising in the public markets. Uh, as part of uh, J.P. Morgan's Tech Media and Telecom Investment Banking Group. Um, And from that point, really transitioned in my career wanting to move into real estate. Uh, In my mid-20s, I joined uh, Fleet Bank uh, in Boston as part of the real estate loan syndications team. And ultimately, Fleet was acquired by Bank of America Securities. And I moved back on to the true investment banking side of the business um, in advising uh, the large public REITs and uh, operating companies within the real estate space, uh, all around the country and, and globally as well. Um, and after doing that uh, for a period of time, I uh, very much wanted to move on to the private equity side of the business and and uh, joined Cross Harbor uh, back in 2006. So I've got north of 14 years now here at the company. And and uh, as Kevin alluded to, had experience in. Uh, our Boston office where I worked for just over nine years before moving out here to the, the West Coast to start our, our West Coast presence here from Newport Beach and and get greater exposure into the markets here on the, the western half of the U.S. Um, when I joined Cross Harbor in 2006, uh, we had just raised a, a discretionary uh, fund that was 425 million of capital. Um, intending to deploy that into roughly a billion and a half to two billion of real estate. And so when I uh, initially started working on the buy side, I, I joined Cross Harbor as a senior associate, moved up over the years uh, through our deal, uh, analytics, execution, and then ultimately moving more into a sourcing and production role with the firm as a vice president, principal, and then now in the managing Director spot for our firm. So uh, over time, we we've really built um, a great platform. You know, over the last twenty eight years, and the fifteen of which, uh, or fourteen to fifteen of which, I've been with the firm um, in really building out our capabilities, our expertise across different segments, um, and uh, in, in helping us to scale our our base of capital as well. So Cross Harbor as a firm, our uh, two co founders who are incredibly uh, skilled, uh, in the, in the business of, of investment management, and particularly within the real estate space, uh, Bill Kremer and Sam Byrne started our firm back in 1992. And, uh, from that point in time, we've invested north of 4 billion of capital, roughly 18 billion of real estate, uh, all around the, uh, United States. And we do so investing in value add and opportunistic real estate, uh, getting involved in, uh, situations where we can, um, really turn situations around where we can uh, generate very strong risk-adjusted returns for our investors, and doing so where we invest in uh, joint venture equity positions, preferred equity, mezzanine capital, and then in stretch senior debt uh, structures. So uh, over time, we've gotten exposure to probably just about every product type and every niche segment of commercial real estate. Um, you know, we, we've got an outstanding track record because uh, we really pride ourselves on uh, strong underwriting, great execution, and, and seeing deals through uh, cradle to grave uh, to the back end. Um, so with north of 200 transactions under our belt, uh, really solid base of institutional investors, uh, it positions us, you know, really well in all market cycles to to be able to efficiently deploy capital, generate very strong returns for our investors. and uh, you know, continue to, uh, build that platform here going forward. So, uh, we're currently investing from our 11th, uh, fund, uh, it's roughly 630 million of capital, um, and, uh, intending to embark on our marketing for our next, uh, investment vehicle here in, in the next couple months. So I'm sure we'll talk quite a bit about the markets and the dynamics at play today. Um, and, uh, you know, look forward to doing that uh, here with you today, Kevin.
0: Yeah, perfect. Um, so, so what is happening in the business now? Where where do you guys see opportunities, and and where are the challenges?
1: Sure. I mean, this this is such a unique uh, environment, right? When we were back at the beginning of the year, and and you know, targeting our, our new investment approach for this year, um, you know, which you know was was really you know running. Long in the tooth, if you will, being a, a long-running economic cycle and uh, significant growth, you know, in our country and within the real estate space since the global financial crisis, uh, we were doing a lot of ground-up new development, whether it be industrial, multifamily, uh, some senior housing, and you know, in mid-March, as we all know, everything came to a halt and everyone's life shifted in a dramatic fashion. Um, you know, we've continued really since that point in time to, to put dollars out into the market, but doing so you know, very thoughtfully, being very conscious of the risk uh, in today's market. Um, and uh, so while we've had you know, a, a lower transaction volume than we would have anticipated going into the year, it's been completely warranted given the, the disruption that's occurred. But really, you know, where, where it's at today is you know, a significant period of, of dislocation you know, has occurred. Um, distress and distress real estate where we capitalize on, uh, you know, in, in, in making profits for our investors is a scenario and a situation which we're going to come very much into in the uh, months and, and year or two ahead, um, just given, given all the disruption at place. So um, we anticipate significant opportunities, you know, certainly within the hospitality segment uh, with lodging and resort-oriented properties um and then considerable amount uh, of, of opportunities in the retail space um but also there are still you know many segments like multifamily, industrial or, or selectively in the senior living space uh that make uh make for some great you know investment uh, opportunities on a development basis so uh we think it's going to be an excellent period uh to deploy capital uh over the next couple of years and uh we're well positioned to do it You know across our three different offices here in the united states
0: yeah and i i agree there's definitely i mean to say there's distress coming in hospitality is probably an understatement i I mean it's here and i think it's uh it's probably maturing as time goes Mm -hmm. by but are you guys seeing much today i mean here we are it's the end of september beginning of october have you seen much capitulation or or are people still navigating through, um, what may be an inevitable, um, you know, negative outcome for, for either the creditor or the equity holders.
1: Yeah. Well, I'd say, you know, the, the, there were situations of distress that, that came about, you know, starting, you know, really in, in April and May. And, you know, many of those already had significant issues and were probably either, you know, projects that never should have been built or were projects that just funct- functionally just had issues in, in performance, uh, predating the whole COVID period. And so that was really the first wave because those were first to crack and break. Um, and I would say that, you know, there, there's a lot of capital on the sidelines and raised Within um, the private equity fund community, so there have been transactions that occurred. We we don't feel that the value, particularly within say the hospitality segment, you know, has made sense yet. Um, I think there have been transactions, many transactions that have gone to market, some which have traded, uh, many of which have traded at levels that far surpass you know the, the real uh, value that the, those assets should be at. So. Kudos to the the sellers of those notes or those situations that they've been able to exit. Um, we feel the best of the opportunities really ahead, and you know, having a bird's eye view into uh, the operations and performance of hotels through our various operating partners nationwide, as well as with hotel exposure that we have, both from an equity and a debt perspective, we have a good sense for for how assets are tracking. And mm. you know, yes, it is an understatement to say distress is coming. But what is you know, really interesting to see is you know, whether it's by market or it's by segment of the hospitality asset class, um, you know, the assets are feeling pain at different points. But bottom line is when the rubber meets the road and people have to write checks to support these assets, um, the, you know, that's when, when the real discussions begin. And you know, when this crisis unfolded and as we moved into the spring months, you know, many lenders provided you know extensive periods of time for borrowers to defer debt service and have forbearance agreements in place and have covenant waivers, and that's fine in the short run. But the assets, you know, will will experience, and, and the lenders and the stakeholders in those assets, um, you know, will need to make decisions, and that that decision making is upon us now. Um, in that uh, many assets are still running at uh, operating cash flow deficits, whether on operations or also through uh, the debt service shortfalls, um, in order to keep their debt current. And so, ownership teams around the country are evaluating, you know, how much they're going to support these assets. And you know, if we have um, you know further periods of disruption, um, you know, whether from a political or a medical. Standpoint as we are into 2021, um, it could drag out periods of time that cause these assets to demand greater amounts of capital, and and we all know in the real estate business, um, you know these assets don't run themselves. They're capital intensive. Uh, they require significant amounts of base building, improvement, and reinvestment from ownership. And so, um, you know, clearly money needs to be funded into these assets when they're not generating. Uh, positive positive flow that's a problem. And so we do think that there'll be a significant uptick in note sales in the market. Um, you know, many of the large banks are very well capitalized and better capitalized than they were in the last downturn, uh, hence giving them greater ability to, to monetize positions, uh, in the market. Um, we have seen, uh, an increase certainly in the number of, uh, financing requests for mezzanine or preferred equity um, to come in to transactions, to provide ownership groups, additional time to, you know, survive the, the storm that they're in. Um, in many cases though, some of those deals have some faults because they sit behind new capital would come in behind a highly leveraged structure, uh, based off where today's values are. And so, uh, certain, certain deals, you know, may make sense in that regard. And we are evaluating some subordinate capital situations, um, often referred to as rescue or runway capital. Um, but, uh, again, we think the better play is going to be through, you know, the purchase of, of senior loan structures or, you know, the, uh, the restructuring of those transactions, um, you know, which will come as we move well into uh, next year.
0: And when you guys look at, uh, node acquisitions or, or, mm-hmm. uh, something like that, is it, is it something that you typically do with an operating partner who has fished out the opportunity and brings it to you as a sponsor, or do you guys find them directly and then just kind of um, manage the process to get to fee title or, 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 restructure with the borrower, depending on kind of the preferred outcome.
1: Sure. Well, yeah, it definitely could come about in a variety of fashions. And, you know, we're, we're always of the view that, you know, where we can, if, if, deal opportunities come in through you know, respected or, or good parties that you know, we can work with and, and we think can add significant value to the situation, uh, we'll absolutely, absolutely accommodate and partner, have a partnership situation on a note purchase. Uh, in some cases, it might be borrowers that you know, are having the discussion with their lenders and you know, have the first opportunity to buy back their debt. So in some cases, we'll partner you know, with the, the existing borrowers to resize and reshape their deal uh, moving forward. Um, and it could be out, outright, just straight, no purchase sales that are in the market, you know, whether it's, you know, direct through some of the brokerage teams direct from the banking institutions themselves or the debt funds, um, that are in the space that, you know, the transactions come up in many form. And, and for us, it's a very bottoms up analysis, um, analyzing basis and, uh, our likely performance that we anticipate, uh, for the asset in the years ahead, um, and we'll create and uh, really, you know, craft some some appropriate structures that we think position us well to mitigate and manage manage risk, but drive you know high yielding return um, again for our investment.
0: And, and will Cross Harbor own assets like that directly, or will you you know maybe take them fee title and then put in uh, either a management team or or kind of I'll call it a fee development deal? Well, it's you know put an incentive in for a sponsor to run it on behalf of Cross Harbor
1: sure sure and and so you know specific to the hospitality space um we will certainly own assets on a direct basis um but obviously you know in the, the nature of the hospitality operations we'll engage a third-party hospitality management firm uh, we like them to you know be working under an incentive-based contract so they're aligned with us in order to drive performance of the asset and in a sense make you know, a a bit of a promote payment, if you will, um, for their achievements uh, at the asset level. Um, So that alignment makes a lot of sense for us. Um, We do have certain cases where our uh, third-party property manager is is also, uh, you know, has an ownership position in the deal in a minority capacity. So anywhere from 5 to 10% of the equity that may be owned by that partnership. So really, it's somewhat deal dependent. Um, I think in the hospitality space, we have more ability to be the sole owner on a direct basis because many hotel firms, hotel management firms, um, you know, will, will have incentive based contracts at play. Um, in other sectors, it can be, you know, um, you know, typically a situation where we're going to have a joint venture partner that's going to share uh, you know, in the uh, cash flows of the asset and as we achieve certain return holders, they're going to uh, disproportionately share to the, to the benefit and, and uh, garner promote interest uh, in that transaction. So it's really case dependent, but we want the people that are going to be uh, guiding day-to-day operations and, and driving value uh, at the asset level to be invested to create the right alignment of interest.
0: Yeah, look, <clears throat> um, the this phrase I heard recently from somebody was, uh, the leading economic indicator is now the virus and the vaccines and and kind of the direction um, that all of that takes. I mean, in the hospitality space, I pulled up a couple of stats last night. I think uh, the peak, or I should say sort of peak to trough or, or the peak downturn, uh, we were 80% off on, um, you know, RevPar. And then if you use the TSA as kind of a proxy for travel, that that was 4% of the previous year. And and even now, I think we're at 29% of of normal air traffic. So you talk about, you know, rescue capital, runway capital, um, you know, trying to arrive at a basis that makes sense for you guys, if you were to Mm -hmm. acquire hospitality assets, any of those things seem to beg us to look into the crystal ball and project when there'll be a recovery and i think if 2020s taught us anything it's that all of our crystal balls aren't very good um, how are you guys mitigating those risks and i know you i know that's a, a really core focus for you and cross harbor but it strikes me as something that's very difficult to uh, you know sort of forecast i mean it's very it's it's very esoteric and, and i don't know that there's a lot of good data that you can rely upon yeah it, it really is it's
1: it's a good point kevin um underwriting today is very uh is a is a big challenge and it's different by geography and by property segment um with all the dynamics at play but certainly in the hospitality industry um you know corporate uh and transient demand of, of lodging product is is just a major driver of occupancies and uh performance of these assets and and right now people very few people are traveling um you know many large companies are are obviously not putting people back out on the road or it's elective uh for the employee to make that decision if they need to travel so it's it's really causing um a standstill if you will in terms of performance coming back in the space and if we have you know further resurgence of you know the, the COVID situation um in the winter months or even if we have an uptick in you know flu season and people are more sensitive to just you know common cold and flu symptoms um we could have a prolonged period of, of a lack of travel um you know our, our full service oriented hotels that might be you know marriott's or hilton's it's been interesting to see because it's the exact opposite of what you would have underwritten initially and in that you know the demand is largely during the week um in many of these assets and then the you know the softer periods are around weekend periods where you're trying to attract you know transient leisure and and, you know team type traffic into uh uh, the hotels right now hotels are performing great on the weekends and they're performing in dismal fashion from monday night uh, through thursday night and so you know it's a complete flip-flop in how these assets have, have performed um, it is a challenge to underwrite them going forward. I think, you know, in the view we'll take on these assets is you have to you have, to have a very, very sober look at projections, take a very conservative stance around occupancies. Uh, ADRs, average daily rate, which is, you know, effectively the rate of hotels charging, um, you know, that's going to be a very slow recovery. And there's not going to be a significant ramp up in terms of uh, rates from where they are today to what they've been historically. So I think, you know, rate, it's going to be pressured going forward. Um, Hotel occupancies, I do think will climb back, I think people will gain comfort with uh, traveling as we're seeing just in the past few months, but for it to come back from the level you mentioned of say, 29% of prior years, air traffic to, you know, move that passenger volume up to, you know, 70, 80%, we have a long way to go, and it's not going to happen overnight. So, you know, much of 2020, Uh, Or I'm sorry, 2021, um, you know, is going to be soft and is going to be a slow ramp up um, on on the recovery in the space. And, you know, if people have comfort with the vaccines and they are appearing as though they work, well, then that could certainly help and that could speed things up a bit. On the flip side, it's going to take a long time for that to get deployed. It's going to take a while for people to get comfortable, you know, seeing the, the impacts. And so I think 2021 is going to be a very soft year. Um, still in the lodging industry, um, in, in many segments, not all, certainly extended stays performed well, you know, many drive to and leisure type spots have performed well. Um, you know, which certainly can happen in the you know, spring and summer months and around certain, you know, holiday periods. Um, but it's going to be a long slog. I think, you know, our view is underwriting these assets on, you know, a, a three to five year, um, forward forecast and really having comfort with our basis, comparative to replacement costs, to know that you know, we're truly in at a significant discount to what these assets were constructed for, making sure we've got ample reserves, uh, both to manage the, the physical quality of the building, but also to, to fund deficits for a prolonged period. And so it makes the numbers and really the bid-ask spread on many deals um, you know, t- to be at a very wide level today. And that will narrow as we get more clarity and, um, you know, more uh, color on how the future will unfold. But uh, nonetheless, it will, there. there's going to be a dramatic amount of assets that just have to move into the transaction market, given the pressures at play. And uh, it will be a question when it comes to a value that makes sense to, to come in and, and transact on those deals.
0: And I know because you guys will touch, you know, kind of all varieties of hospitality, uh, full service down to limited serve. And I imagine you've got flags as well as mm-hmm. uh, boutiques and your primary secondary markets, maybe even some tertiaries nationwide. So having conversations that try to p- put uh, like sort of average metrics out there is difficult because every situation is unique and I appreciate that there's a lot of nuance and texture to each deal and opportunity, but that caveat as a as a lead, um, where do you think we are in terms of, uh, I mean, look, I'm in the finance side, so I want to say it like LTV, but if, if we go February and hotel assets are trading at 100 cents on the dollar, where do you think that is today and where do you think it's headed? I mean, you've said that some people have probably overpaid and, and, you know, kudos to the note holders or whoever the early sellers were that they got out. But where do you think Mm -hmm. we are? Where do you think we're headed?
1: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one indicator that was interesting this week uh, that that came about was, um, you know, one of the servicers who had had a significant amount of their hospitality portfolio appraised, and granted, an appraisal is what an appraisal is, and it, it's to base off largely transactions that, you know, there haven't been really any significant transaction data points in the market, so it's very tough for an appraiser to to peg value. But certainly, you know, taking the viewpoint that you know the income approach and and the potential recovery of these assets that can drive you know an appropriate valuation as to where you know, a party uh, would view value to be today, you know, in the CMBS market, which has, you know, billions and billions of dollars of distressed loan product that's, you know, either already been tossed back or, you know, is heading into, uh, you know, further workout uh, type situations. The view is those values are already off, you know, 27 to, you know, 30 plus percent uh, off the pre-COVID level. And so, you know, that, that debt that originally was viewed to be very, you know, secure and, You know, at a 60 to 65% level is now, you know, upwards of 90% of the value of the asset. Um, And that probably understates the real pain that is embedded there. So, you know, I I think we're off in the range of at least 35 to 40% um, across many segments of hospitality. Um, And it it is different, certainly, if you're talking about limited select service or you're talking about full service. You know, a, a full service hotel, you know, moves to the point of being break even. Um, you know, through the uh, the debt service coverage as well. Uh, when they cross, you know, that forty-five to fifty-five percent range, um, many of those assets are still, you know, hovering in the twenty percent uh, to a low thirty percent range on a blended monthly occupancy level right now. So they're still, you know, needing cash on a monthly basis. Limited select service. It's a little bit different game because the economic model is set up such that um, they can flex more of the, the variable cost structure there. Um, And they can manage to effectively uh, a lower, you know, break even percentage points. So when those assets are operating at, you know, anywhere between 25 to 35% in most markets, you know, they're break even and they have, you know, greater ability to withstand some of the pressures uh, at play.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Understood. Um, Well, look, let's change gears a little bit away from hospitality though. I think you guys are uh, Mm -hmm. probably in for a very interesting season of, investing. And I think um, across the industry, I mean, look, hospitality finds distress in all cycles, it's kind of the perennial uh, distressed asset. I mean, there's always somebody who's kind of gotten over their skis. So it's going to be an interesting time period. Um, let's shift gears, though. So mm-hmm. monetary policy, fiscal policy. Um, you yeah, know, this, this is a remarkable time. We've got $3 trillion that has been pushed in in the form of stimulus. The Fed in terms of bond buying, and, and some would argue almost nationalizing the, the bond market um, and really controlling the 10-year and other interest rates has created this really unique, uh, I'll just say ecosystem. and. I think if you overlay from there you know you've got kind of this nationalization sentiment a reshoring sentiment uh a splinter net possibility coming on um protectionism you know from different nationals across the globe it feels like uh <laughs> you know like I said our crystal ball is probably pretty foggy mm-hmm. at this point but um I'm curious how you guys are viewing I guess I'll, I'll try to focus that a little bit. Um, you know, all, mm-hmm. all of the fiscal policy, all of the monetary policy, the implications for the long-term interest rates, the implications for liquidity in the market. And, uh, you know, you're talking about there's been some early trades that, that cleared the market at prices that you find hard to support. But then we've also said, well, there's also a lot of capital out there and the banks are well capitalized and there's more capital because the feds just put trillions and trillions of dollars out and and they're also you know sort of synthetically supporting ultra low interest rates and bond yields so it's a yeah look i won't I won't color any more <laughs> mm-hmm. with what what i think might flow sure. from there but it, it that's a it's a huge arena to enter into but you know what do you think of all of these dynamics that are in play
1: Right. Well, you know, it's interesting and in, in focusing all those areas within the, the comments you made there towards, you know, the U.S. economy is obviously, you know, the, the largest and one of the best in the world. Um, and that I don't think is going to, you know, change anytime soon. We clearly have, you know, significant compre- competitive pressures from some other uh, nations, but um, we have a tremendous amount of debt and as you alluded to, we've printed a lot of money, uh, to support and to buy peace in the country, uh, over these, um, last number of months. And there's no doubt we're going to remain in a very, very low, low, low interest rate environment for a long, long period of time. And for some who might be a bit older in their career, it's bound to, you know, be for the balance of their career, that it will be that way. It's going to be a long period of time. and, And before, uh, rates are going to tick up to anything of what we've seen in, in years past um, so with that you know borrowing costs are incredibly low um, it's you know there's a heavy heavy push certainly in commercial real estate um, as you can see from just capital flows into the space and, and allocations from pension systems and and other investors to overweight or increase their portfolio exposure into hard assets and into real estate and you know, at this point, and when you look at 30, 40 years of, of data that well, it looks at percentage allocations of, say, a pension system into real estate, it's gone from you know, anywhere from a 2 to 4% level of the portfolio up to north to 12% to 14% today, and maybe even higher. I haven't looked at those stats recently. Um, so you have a tremendous amount of capital that's seeking yield and is moving into hard asset classes and into commercial real estate, and it, and it has brought down the returns in the space. Um, it's made being a, you know, a, a private equity and opportunistic investor that seeks high yields. It's made it certainly more challenging, right? Because we have to look at that many more opportunities or find that many more inroads to unique transactions to, to generate the types of yields that we're seeking. Um, and there's a substantial amount of dry powder, um, you know, on the sidelines. I think I saw a stat, you know, somewhere around four to four hundred fifty billion. Of capital that's earmarked for, um, you know, core plus value add and opportunistic real estate in the United States. So that's substantial, um, and it's going to continue to put pressure on yields. But that being said, it's, you know, real estate. It, it's not an easy game in the sense that anyone can just jump in and generate big returns off, you know, these challenged situations. There's a lot of skill and expertise that needs to. Uh, to be applied here, and whether it's through, as you noted, structural, you know, elements that we might tie into different transactions, but more so, you know, teaming with the right parties, bringing in the right expertise, um, you know, having the right financing structures in place, uh, it, you have to bring a lot of pieces of the puzzle together to execute well to generate those yields, um, and. You know, I think that's going to be paramount in the years ahead because there's, you know, for instance, we'll work with a lot of different operating partners around the country and they might be great at, you know, buying assets, doing value improvement programs, you know, handling leasing, but that's when the skies are blue and, you know, the the fairways clear and things are nice. But when, when things get stormy and choppy and, you know, you get more conditions that come into the play, um, you know, a lot of groups or individuals haven't navigated that in, in, you know, prior periods and haven't, you know, perhaps maybe a newer sponsor that hasn't been through that type of situation. So I think, um, you know, for, you know, for operators out there aligning with capital that, you know, has been through, you know, cycles and has been through periods of distress and knows how to think about the risks in the market, you know, is incredibly important, but, you know, we have, you know, many, many shifting factors, you know, affecting different segments, uh, you know, whether it be office and office using trends, um You know whether it be you know the impacts in the multifamily market with you know how people are going to live. Are they going to live in urban cores? Are they going to move to suburbia? Are they going to move back home? Are they going to club up with roommates? Are people you know going to actively look for you know moving into a single family home or a single family rental? So you know multifamily has so many different you know dynamics at play. um But it, you know in the United States you have you know a big big difference between the red and the blue states here and how they're performing. Um, and I think investors as well are, are gravitating heavily to, you know, pro-growth states that, um, you know, have policies and have quality of life and have, um, you know, the the prospect of being a great place to live, raise a family um, and, uh, and have, you know, good education. So I, you know, I think there's going to be certain areas of our country that are going to, you know, continue to do very well and benefit. I think there's others that are going to see a significant, you know, negative impact. Um, and I think, you know, the COVID period's accelerated that. Much like, you know, we often talk sector wise in real in retail, you know, the COVID piece accelerated what was probably bound to happen over five or seven years. It moved it into, you know, a few months. Um, I think we're going to continue to see trends like that across just about every area of commercial real estate and uh, you know, in other parts of uh, the world we live in.
0: Yeah, it's a truly catalytic event. I mean, I, the things that have changed and the way they have changed and the speed with which they have changed has been really astounding. And I've I've found myself prognosticating on the front end of this only to find out that I was completely wrong. I mean, a good example is for sale housing. I mean, there's no way I would have seen a mm-hmm. spike in demand, uh, all time confidence on. The home builder right. confidence index, the highest housing starts in two thousand six. I mean, what an interesting time. Mm-hmm. Um, but look, you're, you're you're touching on a couple things here um, that I think are really interesting. This this movement of real estate to an asset class, right? Stocks, bonds, real estate, and and going, you know, when you're looking at pension funds that are hundreds of millions of dollars. And as a herd, they begin to increase their allocations. It's doing exactly what you you, uh, you know, identify, which is putting more pressure on the space. And then, you know, the other thing that I see is a really large percentage of the built environment, probably 50% or, or more. Um, the commercial environment is um, buildings of 50,000 square feet or less. So You've got Blackstone going out there and putting $167 billion mortgage rate together. And, you know, you guys are, you're not, you're not massive, but you're a very large, uh, respectable firm with, I think you said eight, $18 billion of transaction history. And yet you have the rest of the market that's, that's sub-institutional in size and all of the, the managers who might like to play in the space that Cross Harbor plays, um, the investment managers are going out to that institutional capital base and saying, Hey, we have a good thesis. This is what it is. They've all been uh, largely shut out. I mean, this is becoming a game of, of fewer and fewer players with mm-hmm. larger and larger assets, right. uh, which means to to what you just said, there's more and more competition for people executing more or less mm-hmm. similar strategies. I agree with your your notion of skill and expertise being the differentiator and your ability to to put together the right teams. But how do you how do you see that whole dynamic? Sure. The the right. funds getting bigger, more money coming into this space, more or less pursuing the same strategies.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um it's it's something we closely evaluate. And I think, you know, the number of funds, you know, and and fund managers has increased um, you know, dramatically over the last, you know, 15, 20 years. Um but you know what you notice is, is at the end of various economic cycles, there's a, a number of groups that might be one or two funds in. Well, they go into one of the most challenging fundraising periods they can because now uh, if there's a period of distress and recession in the economy, um, the allocators of capital are much more bound to allocate with established longstanding groups that have track record. And so uh the Blackstones, the Carlisles, the Starwoods, you know, there's there's many great names. And they'll just given the reputation and the history, uh, you know, they'll they'll be able to continue to to raise capital. And I'd I'd tier those groups in some of the, you know, the very large scale, as you alluded to the multi-billion dollar fund management groups that are investing. Uh, globally. Um, and in many cases, you know, taking a little bit different approach. While they're obviously very focused on an asset value, um, you know, the improvement of value, they're also very capital market driven um, and capital flow uh, focused. Uh, for firms like ourselves, we'll, we'll manage funds that, you know, are generally going to range somewhere between, you know, 500 and, million and a billion. Um, because we think that's more efficient to deploy in most markets when you're really focused on making money at an asset level. I think what will happen uh, in the years ahead is I think the number of fund managers will decline. And I would say that for all of the you know the fund managers similar in size to us, they will probably uh, look to scale up the size of the funds. And so I think it will ratchet down the number of firms in the space. And I think there'll be you know, the ability to have greater scale, um, which to cover the markets, you need to, you know, certainly add, you know, more people and more offices and in, you know, regional locations to cover the deal flow and to, you know, find deal opportunities that, you know, are consistent in size with what has been allocated on a per property level, um, in the past, but being able to do that in the future. So, you know, a firm like us moving from one offices to one office to now a total of three offices, uh, very likely with, you know, the ability to, you know, add, you know, two, three, four additional offices and put some strong local talent to generate, you know, deal flow that's consistent with what we've been doing historically, um, you know, that that's appealing. And then you can put out a larger fund. So I think, you know, the allocators of capital, when they move decisions forward for making new investments in funds, they go to their committees and to their groups and track record matters. History matters. Uh, having strong fiduciary responsibility uh, in how you've acted through cycles is very important. And so, if you have that track record, and you have that history. Um, you know, it's somewhat, you know, in the the you're you're in the pole position. You know, if you keep performing and putting up great numbers, uh, investors recognize that. And always doing the right thing by your investors is uh, is crucially important. So. Um, that's what we pride ourselves on you know our, our investment style and thesis over our duration has remained uh, consistent and and that's that enables us to uh, consistently raise money you know in the market. Um, but you know no doubt there, there is a, a lot of money coming in and, and it will be an interesting uh, field to see how it plays out.
0: Well and another way to sort of touch on what I think you're saying is um, it's also the power of team. Right, mm-hmm. I know. I know that you have a small team that you run. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's you and three others, and and then I know you guys are a much larger piece of Cross Harbor, or sorry, you're a part of the much larger larger Cross Harbor, which I think is like seventy people. Is that correct? We're getting close to
1: that, we're probably right around uh, fifty-five to sixty-five people. Fifty-five to sixty people
0: today. Okay, yeah. So look, years ago, I heard a tech guy. Uh, asked the question of you know are you are you afraid of competing technologies and immediately he replied uh, i have no fear of other technology i'm afraid of other teams and teams that are better than us um what's your view i mean you have a small team you've had that team for a while like how do you view mm-hmm. How do you view your team and, and team building and things like that? Yeah,
1: well, it's, it's you know, in, in our business with the capital we manage, it's, you know, it's significant and very large by overall asset size. Uh, and it's, you know, comparatively, I'd say low from a headcount standpoint versus what you might see in other industries. You know, if... if you know, someone you randomly meet says, who do you work for? And, you know, you work for a private equity fund manager and outside of maybe two or three of them, you mention the name, no one's going to know who that firm is, right? But they manage substantial amounts of money and, uh, and they have a, a lean team and, and generally they're, you know, behind the radar, they're not in the press and, you know, they're, they're funneling huge amounts of money into, you know, the commercial real estate segment. Um, so within that team, like for instance, you know, our team of, of let's say it's 60 today, um, you know, there may be 20, 22 people that are active on the the new investments and acquisition side of our business. And, you know, it's important for as a, you know, fund manager that you have consistency and you have people on your team that you've grown and you've built over time who have trained in your system and your style and, and your understanding of risk and how you underwrite risk, how you structure risk. And so, you know, what we focus on is you know, bringing in very good, smart people that are great team players, you know, they're, they're constructively competitive. And so they're challenging themselves every day to, you know, perform at a very high level, but they're team focused. Cause you, you don't, you don't individually, you know, the goal is to win as a team. Right, our, our our funds are invested together. Our deals are put together. You know, as a fund manager, you're ultimately compensated by the overall performance of that portfolio, not the individual deal. And so, you know, that you know, in in our setup, creates a good culture and style as to how we approach every day. You know, it's a team environment. You know, certain people are tasked with sourcing and helping to structure. Others are tasked with heavy elements of execution and analytics. Um, But the key is if you grow those people over time you train them well you teach them you give them upward mobility to you know continue to grow in their career path people are loyal right and you want to be challenged and have a great uh Enjoyable job that that challenges you, that's thought provoking, that's you know analytically, uh, you know, fitting for what you might want, but also you know you can you can get compensated as well, which is obviously very important you know for everyone. So you know we always preach it's a balance of you know having fun and uh, making money and you know being in an environment where you like the people you're around. Um, and I just think you know every great team you know i'm a new england patriots fan i mean look at the team dynamics that can be created with uh the the benefit of a team attitude and uh it's not about one person and and what that one player is capable of doing you've got to have a well-rounded team to ultimately be successful so that's the approach we take every day and you know our teams are very collaborative that's another you know important piece is you know in every organization you're going to have teams working on different pieces but you also want to ensure that within that organization, the teams you know are, are collaborative together and um, you know like to see the other teams succeed. Um, so that that's something we we really try to instill as well in uh, in the people that we grow.
0: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna let your uh, New England Patriots comment uh, <laughs> be because I'm a longstanding Denver Broncos fan, and we can't <laughs> we can't get to the Super Bowl thanks to Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. But, um, you know, there's another aspect of teams, which is the relationships. And, and the longer I've been in this business in particular, mm-hmm. I believe it's true of all business. Yeah. Um, but the clearer it's become to me that relationships are central. We all need to have mm-hmm. a base level competence in order to kind of put up the table stakes to, to play right. the game. Um, but it seems the conduit through which all good things travel are, are relationships. And uh, I'm curious how you view relationships with your uh, charge of, of originating deals and, and, you know, sort of negotiating things through to a successful close. Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. I, I, to- I totally agree. Um, you know, I remember back in when I was in college, our, uh, our, our, you know, undergrad business school was, was really focused on networking. And this was back in the, you know, the late nineties. So i'm aging myself and but there was a heavy focus as a business university on the power of networking and the power of building connections and you know maintaining those connections and relationships over time and um i think you know we in commercial real estate as you alluded to it is it's, it's a big industry but it's small right we we all are one or two steps removed from knowing you know the person that might come up on a certain transaction and we all have you know common affiliations in some way because it is it is a small network um, but the relationships are key. And, you know, our, our view, and, you know, we, we tell groups this all the time is, um, you know, your reputation matters, and doing what you say uh, matters. And, you know, just being very forthright when there's issues or situations that come up that need to be addressed or, or discussed. Um, and, you know, if you if, if you act in an honorable fashion, it leads to good relationships that end up being very fulfilling over time, both personally and, and professionally. And so, you know, we, we always, you know, as you and I, Kevin have worked over the years and we value the people, um, who, you know, bring great opportunities, um, who, you know, provide, you know, good insight into transactions, qualities of sponsorship on deals that they're raising capital for. Um, and we like to reward those parties, you know, because in the end of the day, it, you know, yes, there's the personal relationship side, there's also the financial side, this is people's work, and they need to, you know, be treated well. And so we try to treat all partners that we team with in a very, very fair, and and we like them to have a, a great experience with us, with our firm. Um, and then, you know, in turn, we like to bring opportunities that we see to some of our operating partners in different markets. And again, it's, it's relationship driven, as you noted, um, it's, you know, no matter how automated or how much technology comes into a certain space, bottom line is things get done when people get together and, you know, have a meeting of the minds and and make things happen. And so, um, we, we value relationships and it's at the core of what we're doing every day and in building new ones and strengthening ones we've had over time.
0: Yeah, that's great. And, and, uh, you know, we're talking about sort of capital formation on the side of this industry that, that I play, right. Going out to the, the middle market operators, developers, or investors, and, and sourcing capital mm-hmm. on their behalf, with the the backdrop of this podcast, uh, at least partially serving to support real estate entrepreneurs, you know, you've been on the whole wide array of good, bad, short-lived, long-lived relationships um, with potential partners. You have any... Um, I'll call it wisdom that you might pass along to Mm -hmm. somebody who might be listening, who, who really doesn't have uh, the rules of the road, doesn't have the, the 15, 20 years of experience that you do, you know, if they're going out into the market and, and trying to sell their vision, sell their deal to an institutional capital partner, what, you know, what, I know that it's a, it could be a voluminous response, but you know, Mm -hmm. if you, if you have some uh, little nuggets that you might pass on, do what would you tell the, the, the young upstart who's trying to figure out how to crack this nut?
1: Sure. Um, you know, I'd, I'd definitely say for, mm-hmm. you know, the, the young entrepreneurs in the business, you know, it, there, there's great parts of commercial real estate, real estate in general, and that, you know, there's not a high barrier to entry in the sense that, you know, you don't have to come out of one of the most elite uh, Ivy League schools or top MBA programs, you know, to... Mm-hmm to have an opportunity to be in the, the segment. I mean, clearly, if, if, uh, you have the ability to, you know, be smart, find great opportunities and work very hard, you can do very well in the space. But, you know, with that, I think it's important that people recognize, you know, and as a, 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 you know, say a younger person in the business, get the appropriate experience, you know, work with um you know spend the time to be the sponge and soak in great knowledge from um you know many different there's many different shops and in and, and different groups where you can get great experience in the space you know or in the analytics really well at a young level um and understand just how a transaction comes about gets executed and how it gets realized over time um and just take the opportunity to focus less about making making the buck early in your career, uh, worry more about getting the right experience, which will yield a much better longer term benefit. Um, And, you know, as someone, you know, in the space who say gets, you know, five to 10 years of great experience, you know, um, you know, oftentimes, then that's the point many people want to start their, you know, their platform and, and try to make a go of it. Um, and I think, you know, whether it's as an individual level or potentially it's teaming up with a couple other peers in the industry to, to launch a platform, uh, you know, take time to be thoughtful about, uh, the approach, the strategy, uh, making sure you've got the expertise and the skill to do it. Um, but also, you know, when we have groups come in to, to pitch us, some groups love every deal, right. And they, they just want to find a way to get deals done. Um, You know, we gravitate to groups that come in with unique opportunities where they are so, uh, they have so much conviction about the deal and the situation that they're working on that, you know, they want to invest in that deal. They want to have alignment with us. They want to carry, you know, they they recognize they're going to have great upside, but they're going to take some risk to do that. Um, That sets itself up very well for a situation uh, of success um, versus just a group or an individual that you know is pitching a deal that um you know has uh, a number of flaws so i i I think it's just important get the right level of experience um surround yourself with a very strong you know base of people that share a common vision for what they're intending to create um and then you know as you approach say the institutional capital community to raise money for transactions really be buttoned up and polished in the sense of understanding your deal and the metrics and uh, the investment thesis Um, and being able to show that you've got the ability to execute, you know, these deals don't happen, you know, they might happen quickly, but the actual duration of the deal might be, you know, anywhere from two to seven years and more typically they're three to five year type situations. Um, So showing that there's a commitment to the, you know, in this deal, uh, to have this platform established, to be making a long-term um, push with, with the business and the strategy and, and showing that you've got a deep bench to be able to uh, to withstand you know the challenges that, that might come about is very important.
0: Yeah, and, and, and the subtext, I think I heard you saying in all of that also is um, being materially invested, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know how many deals you and I both would have seen where you know, the, the LP, uh, sorry, the GP operating partner is proposing to do, let's call it a 2% co-invest and has a 3% management fee and is looking for non-recourse debt and uh, has a low net worth and liquidity and is borrowing the 2% uh, LP capital. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that all of those things across the board are, are, are no-goes because there are there are people who can pull that off and, and there are situations where that can make sense. Um, but generally <laughs> that's, that's pretty significant red flags. And mm-hmm. I, I, I thought for sure, I heard you saying, um, you know, material doesn't necessarily mean a nominal amount. It means material to, to that sponsor.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's correct. Um, you know, and, and what we always say is, you know, we're, we're going to be putting up a lot of capital on this transaction we want our partner to be economically invested in a similar fashion. And some have a substantial balance sheet, some may have a thinner balance sheet, but the amounts that they're putting forth are amounts that are actually invested in the deal. They're not taken out through you know, acquisition fees or ongoing management fees, such that if there's a problem during the duration of the investment, they're, you know, they can turn away and say, well, I've, I've already been made whole, I got my investment out through these fees. You know we want parties that if we're going to feel pain you know they're going to feel pain right because that's that should be the balance uh in the partnership right we want to be aligned with our partner to, to uh execute on a transaction and there's no better way to do it than when someone's got financial exposure um because they're going to watch that investment and they're going to be very keen to make sure it performs um there you know we, we do see the crazy asks um those tend to be short discussions. Um, if they can get their deal done, great, but good for them, it might have worked in one or two cases. over the long haul, it doesn't tend to because markets will change, uh, economic time periods will change, and you know many of those deals can sometimes be the first to fall because um, you know that sponsor who maybe arranged that one deal. In that type of fashion you mentioned, might have arranged five or six of those, and, and guess what? Now they've got some serious problems that are demanding their time on different fronts, and uh, and the attention and the focus is lost. So you know that's why you know I like partners that are thoughtful of picking the opportunities they really feel they can add the most value on, and the ones that you know they'd rather take on you know, two to five projects where they can make substantial amounts of money because they're really good real estate deals versus a sponsor who wants to take on ten to fifteen projects, knowing that, you know, ten to twelve of these probably are gonna be mediocre performers or sub performers and uh and maybe there's a couple they they have, you know, some good good upside on. But we really like the guys who focus more on on you know paydays than uh paychecks.
0: Yep, yeah, I agree. Um so like a couple questions we'll transition over a little bit to your your sort of day-to-day um you're obviously a high Mm -hmm. performer you've had a lot of success at cross harbor and elsewhere in your career um daily routines like my view um of a day is if i can do my best to win that day um i've got a much better chance to kind of as we say win it all like Mm -hmm. my life is nothing but a series of individual days and so i set up a bunch of routines that I hope get my head in the right place t- to to begin the day and, and hopefully kind of keep me on track and put the W up for that day. I, I wonder for you if you have any kind of daily routines or habits or or uh, systems that that you mm-hmm. lean on for for your sure. own personal you know sort of performance.
1: Sure. Well, there you know we and as you have talked about in the past too. There's a lot of you know, there's a lot of distractions we all face these days, right? I mean, the technology is a great thing, but it's also one that, you know, has really increased the speed of business. It's increased the level of potential distractions. You know, I, I joked to one of my kids that I said, I feel like at times I'm playing a video game during the day with the amount of emails that are coming in and, you know, the <laughs> quick tapping up my keyboard and, you know, it's uh, it, it's exciting and interesting, but you really have to stay focused on what your goals are each day. Um and so, you know, I think organization and organizational habits are incredibly important. I can't tell you how many smart, smart people I've met in my career who couldn't get themselves organized. And in the end of the day, they, you know, it just became too much and they, they couldn't perform at a high level. And so, you know, I, I always, and I joke, my kids do, I say the, the best way to start every day is get that bed made right when you wake up, you know, start yeah. off with some success, leave the house knowing when you come back, it's going to look good. Um, and and go about your day with a plan. So, you know, I, I, on a very granular, you know, personal level, I mean, you know, I keep a really active few page list that I have tiered and tranched out across, you know, different efforts, initiatives, deals, and, you know, that document gets printed once or twice a day uh, with updates, you know, because, you know, and it's also got a you know, kind of key action list, if you will, of like the top priorities for the day. So, you know, we all have 30 or 40 things going on that, you know, are, are going to take up time. We might also have, you know, 20 or 30 people we want to be reaching out to and having discussions with, let alone we've got scheduled meetings or calls or whatever it might be uh, for, you know, the individual's organization. It's just important, it's important to be organized and to allocate time. And, you know, you and I joked in, in I think some prior uh, discussions that, know sometimes getting that time on an airplane when you don't have the phone going off you're not sitting next to your desk phone uh you have clear ability to focus is important so you know early on in my career i I used to you know read a lot of you know business books um you know as i was becoming a a true student of business and you know there was one that said every great ceo you know takes an hour a day where they just think it's really important Mm. to think get your priorities straight. Um, what, however that is, it might be someone, you know, tying that in as part of doing their daily exercise. It might be truly like meditation. It might be <laughs> come under a, bu- a bunch of different forms, however it is just find what works for you, but stay focused on what you have that day and that week and make sure that fits into the puzzle of what you're trying to do over that year or that five years. Absolutely. You know, Even like Covey said it well, it's, you know, you, you have to begin with the end in sight and i think that's a really important concept to always keep and know where do you have a circle of influence what can you affect and when you've affected as much as you can in a certain situation and now you're waiting on response or feedback or whatever it is you've got to move on at that point tackle your next task and be able to manage a a number of different tasks um, at any one time
0: yeah and uh, a friend of mine just said this last week in conversation uh, I'm sure you will have heard this, but uh, the notion is vision without execution is hallucination. And then execution without vision is a nightmare. Uh, there's definitely a balance for all of us to to strike there. That's very, uh, very insightful. So um, I'll leave you with, with this one. If you get to put up a billboard, uh, we'll call it Newport Beach, and your target audience is... Uh, you know, kind of the the real estate entrepreneur or the entrepreneur at large. Which, to me, if there's any silver bullet in our uh, current society and and culture, it's it's the entrepreneur. It's those people who accept responsibility for the outcome of their endeavors. Um, you get to put the billboard. Just put anything you want on there. You got any <laughs> ideas about what you might put up? Billboard it's free, but it's... that might be tough to put up. <laughs> well, well, we'll break the rules and we don't have to pay for it either.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. No, it's better and better. Um, yeah. I mean, it, from the standpoint of, of advice to an yeah. entrepreneur or. Yes. You know, yes. We're all just really, you know, you live once. And so, you know, follow, follow your heart, follow your dreams, do it sensibly and in a sober fashion to make sure you've got the skills for what you're trying to do. But once you have those skills and you have that dream, um, you know, go, go full fledged at it, don't let, you know, a certain, um, disruption or a, a certain loss on a certain thing set you back. I mean, you have to keep fighting. You have to stay focused. So I'm probably not giving you the best because that's a lot of text for a billboard, no, that's right. But the uh, notion is there. Thematically, we... That's the way I'd approach it. Is you, you live once, enjoy it and
0: build it. Yeah. And, and what I hear you say there is also fail forward, right? The failures yeah. are inevitable, but fail forward.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny. Actually, my, uh, one of my football coaches in high school, he, he said, you never, you never learn to win if you've never lost. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, it, it was great motivation for a team that really didn't have a good season um, to come back and fight hard the next year. But it, it was very true. <laughs> so you do learn more when you lose because you see what didn't go right and you know how to protect. And, I
0: think that's really and, and you have the emotional pain that burns in the, the learning that you really need. Correct,
1: absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. going through the adverse situations is uh, oftentimes the you know the the real piece of learning that everyone needs in their career.
0: Eric, thank you very much for taking the time. If you want to um, put out a website for Cross Harbor, your email, anything, uh, feel free to do that now. Great.
1: Well, yeah, Kevin, thank you very much, you know, for having uh, me on today. I hope this is helpful for those who may be listening here now over an hour into this. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, certainly, you know, feel free. Anyone can can check out our uh, website at crossarborcapital.com com. learn more about our uh, investment style, our thesis. Uh, we're, we're certainly always uh, welcome to, you know, new projects or situations uh, qualified groups are working on and, um, you know, look forward to, you uh, you know, always seeing new opportunities and and finding new entrepreneurs and and people who really have an ability to make a difference in the business. So thank you, Kevin.
0: Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot, Eric. I'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.